Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, aholics? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. I appreciate your uh, your listenership. Good day to you. I hope you're doing okay. I am squirrely as fuck. I've been shooting all day. That's what I've been doing. And I've, I've bitten my lip three times in the same fucking place. And it's driving me nuts. And every time I do it, every time I hit it again, I just want to punch myself in the fucking face because it's like, what is that about? I understand. It's because the the part that you bit gets a little bigger. And so it becomes a natural target for whatever is going to bite it. My teeth. So I, I just hit this place three times in my mouth. Then I hit the other side once. And it's like, when is it going to stop? When I can't talk? I got shit to do. I'm on camera. I'm talking to you. I'm recording stuff. I can't be all bitten up in my mouth. Then I start worrying, well, shit, maybe I'm going to get a cold sore now because it's all bitten up and I can't have a cold sore because I got to tape my show. The weird thing about making television, about having a production schedule is that there's no sort of like, yeah, I'm going to take a sick day. I'm in every scene of, of every show, pretty much, give or take a minute. And we're making 13 shows. I'm not complaining. I just like, I get panicky about shit. I don't know what to tell you, man. Brian Koppelman's on the show today. And this is sometimes a thing that I don't always appreciate or understand or know what I'm supposed to do with. Uh, Brian Koppelman is a film director and a screenwriter. Uh, he also has a podcast. He's, uh, he's the writer. He wrote Rounders and he's the director of uh, Solitary Man, which I believe he, he also wrote. He's the host of the podcast, The Moment. He's a guy I met years ago. S- says he's always been a fan of mine. And he started his podcast because I inspired him. A lot of people seem to be doing things that, uh, and they find me inspirational. That makes me very happy. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm humbled by it. But I don't always take it into, uh, you know, I, I don't always really realize how profound that is. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't have some sort of process or 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 mode of operating. I don't I don't have a system. Yeah, okay, granted, some of you guys listen to a lot of these and you're like, no, you, sometimes you, you kind of do have a system. Yeah, I, I have a style, I guess, but I, I didn't plan anything. But uh, yeah, it's very flattering that people that people uh, are inspired by me. 
All right, so let's let's just lay it out. Okay, today, let me tell you who I've been working with on the show. Dave Anthony's back on Marin this season. We did, did we shot a bunch of stuff in the rain last night. That's always great to be out in the chilling rain at night. I, I know some of you were in a blizzard the other day, kinda. Some of you uh, were anticipating a blizzard. Didn't happen. It rained a little here, but we're okay. Thank you for asking. So we had a little rain. We're doing some shooting. We're driving and shooting. Very exciting. Me and Dave Anthony. Uh, today I worked with uh, with Andy Kindler. I worked with Eddie Pepitone today. Uh, tomorrow we're gonna we're shooting a big day of uh, who else? Oh, Eddie Pepitone again. I'm not gonna tell you all the uh, people playing themselves on the show because I don't want to spoil anything. But it's going well. It's going well. Uh, I'm not thrilled about my hair. And uh, most of my pants are fitting well, and the shirts uh, I'm happy with. I've got new shoes that I don't love because they're a little tight, and I might have fucked up. But that's the way life goes. Now let's go to a cat update. I look, I you know, I I, I tell you this because people ask me, folks. <sighs> Monkey and Lafonda are fine. Okay, all good. Ever since I've been giving them the uh, monkey, the prescription food, his bladder's been better. He's got all his energy back. He's not sick. Fonda's getting a little fat, but she's fine. She's not biting me very much, and she uh, she seems chipper. Now, the outdoor situation is not great. I don't know what happened to Deaf Black Cat. Have not seen that guy in a while. Might be dead. It's happened before, but it feels like he was making weird noises with his face the last time I saw him. There's nothing I could do about it, so I don't know. I don't know what those noises meant. Maybe he's around. Don't know. Scaredy Cat, the striped cat that's been coming around for about a decade, he was coming around in back, and he was doing fine, getting fat. Wild cat, fat wild cat. You know, a couple people are feeding him up the street, and I'm I'm just another sucker making him fat. So then all of a sudden, some other cat that looks exactly like him, only a little smaller, exactly like he had, he just... Broke off a piece of himself and it grew into another thing. Couldn't be a kitten because Scaredy Cat's been fixed for a while, but he looks exactly like him. So I got these two identical striped cats and the the little guy pushed the fatso out into the front because I don't know, he's freaked out. He's only eating out front and this guy's eating him back. Some sort of weird changing of the guard of these striped cats. I don't know if Scaredy Cat number one is on his way out and Scaredy Cat number two is coming in, but they they look identical. So that's weird. I don't know what's ripping apart my lawn out front. I might be skunks, might be raccoons. That's the update from around here. Things are fine <clears throat> with my relationship so far. Have not fucked it up, and uh, I'm keeping. Uh, I'm keeping. I'm keeping cool. In other words, I'm repressing a lot of negative emotions, and I'm calling that uh, cool. I'm just. I'm just locking down some bullshit. I'm just keeping it to myself and letting it fester and cause tumors inside of me so as not to cause trouble for other people. Perhaps I should communicate better as opposed to give myself cancer. Good idea. I'll work on it. Thank you for all the presents. Thank you for all the kind letters. Thank you for all the emails. I'm going to start reading some emails again. I know people want it. It might be an easier thing to do while I'm shooting occasionally to read the emails. I feel stories brewing. I'm just a little, a little burnt out. It's a tough schedule, my friends. Tough schedule. 
Let's talk to Brian Koppel. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. And now... Like, I don't really know, uh, you know, how people do things. Yes, I, I believe you. I know what that means. Like, like how do you, at, fi- at 50 years old... Right, it's like, okay, like, it's still really... I know that all I have to do, really, is spend a couple hours, make a couple of calls, and I could have everything cleaned up. I could have my driveway fixed. I could have the wall fixed. I, I could do all that. I just have to engage. I could have the this guy i could hire contractors and go live somewhere else for a while and just be like well that's happening you know they're doing my house but it's so overwhelming the anxiety of it that that's what's holding me back more than anything else because success and actually successful is a word i don't even like that word it's just successful before even if i bought a house like oh my god how do i make the right choice about decision making but there is some part of me that doesn't quite know how other people see me. Like, because successful or no successful, still, whatever I do, I come here, I do this. The only tangible way that I know that success is changing is that there are people coming to see me. There's more people that come. Well, and even that's a little weird. More, yep. Yeah, of course, you, you'd find it weird because you so, my, it seems like you so identify uh, yourself still, you know, as the, uh, as the opposition as opposed to as the seated. I don't know if I if it's the opposition because I know that I'm seated in my world. Yes. But it's uh, I, I don't know if it's the opposition, but certainly uh, uh, someone who's on the outside. Sure, yeah, but not the opposition. Fine. Well, but yeah, because I still I am I am still on the outside. But like I could make I could make decisions and live my life a little more on the inside if I wanted to. And and you could accept that it's not all disappearing because all I mean by successful yeah, well, is that, that it's not all disappearing. I don't know about that. That's the, but that's the work you got. Isn't that the work you want to do? No. Why? Because it can't all disappear. Anything could disappear. Well, we could die. Yes, we could die. I could get sick and it could disappear. I, get, I mean, it's, it's um, not... That it's not, yes, but that um, that it's not going to, other than, yes, um, what uh, people would say, other than acts of God, or, yeah, you could get sick, uh, a boulder could fall out of the sky, but, uh, but you're no longer going to uh, self-destruct, and, uh, and even if you, it, it, weirdly... You would have to do a whole series of uh, very dramatic things to reverse the course of all this. I don't stuff. Know you just if that's got picked true. up for the third season of your own TV I show. I did, but I but it's still like but congratulations. It, thank you. I I don't know if it would take that many steps. Uh, and and I don't I, I don't worry about self destructing. I just um and I don't really pay attention to money that much. Uh, I just keep going. What 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 I'm really concerned about is uh, you know not having. Um, 
you know, not having a family, not having dependents, not, you know, having these things. Like, I don't, I don't know what the hell to do with myself. So it's really like, I would rather not do anything, to be honest with you. And people don't believe me when I say that. But I really think that, like, I could occupy myself with, with you know, I, I've done. I, yeah, you I, could write, you could play music. I don't need to write. <laughs> oh, you don't even want to write? No. I don't. <laughs> what do you, how would you, so, okay, if you're not writing. Yeah. You don't, you don't, uh, you play guitar. Yeah, I like to do that. I'm not sure what I do. It's a fantasy. Yes, yeah, I mean, yeah, live that out even for a life. It's just, it's just, uh, it's just anxiety. It's not even. Uh, I don't think it's all going to go away necessarily. I'm, I, you know, I'm saving money and stuff, but I, I just don't know right. what it all means sometimes, buddy. Well, no, I get that. The family, yes, I, I, it's funny driving up here. I, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking about that. Y- you should, you know, no one can ever tell anybody else, yeah. certainly about the family stuff. But gosh, it's so easy to picture the way that you would change and the way that it would uh, just light up so many things for you to do it. Yeah, I guess so. I'm a little cynical right now. What you, what you, what you, how long have you been married? I've been married 20, uh, 22 years. No problems? Dude, I'm like, I mean, no, that thing has been the luckiest thing in the world for me. That's the, the most important decision that y- you make. And I was just fucking lucky because i was 25 when i got married yeah and i just married the right person and that's luck largely luck but you don't strike me as a guy that's about to lose it do some stupid shit i don't strike you like that no. right i'm not i know you, you seem like a pretty i married uh, the right person we have these great kids but uh part of it is that the, the person i married and uh, i'm the same towards her we were just from the very beginning really on each other's like completely on each other's missions so when i was 30 and ready to and and miserable about what i was doing with my life you know and we had just had a little kid amy cleared out the storage area underneath the apartment we were living in amy and she cleared out the storage area and was like you're gonna do this and i'm gonna handle you know this first year of sammy's life uh, if you have to write in the morning and then go to work and then go out and research because, you know, it was about poker and I was like playing cards. She was like, you can do this. And it was you, when you were writing rounders? Yeah. And she was like with my best friend, Dave. She cleared the space and Dave and I met every morning. But the, but the point of it is she said, uh, and from the beginning, we had this thing with each other that um, we were just along for the, we were there for like whatever this ride not She didn't want to be married to a guy that was whining about not having done something for the rest of his life. Sure. Maybe that's the we're, thing. We're, Maybe that's all it was. Well, you, there's nothing worse than living with a guy like, ah, I should have, man, if I had only. Uh. Uh, but a lot of people, as you know, would be, uh, would, would uh, douse the dream as opposed to stoking the dream. Well, let's go back. So this was in New we York? Anywhere. Yeah, New York. You grew up in New York. I grew in up New an York. hour out of New York. I grew up Long Island. So you grew up on the island. What yeah. town? I grew up first in Westbury and then in a town called Roslyn. Roslyn, Long Island. Yeah. And big house. Oh, yeah. Big house. Pool. Yeah. When I was uh, 13, we moved into a big house. Before that, uh, we lived in a neighborhood in a night, you know, in a fine house in a neighborhood. Uh, Jewish kids, Italian kids, Irish kids, stickball mm-hmm. in the street, right. basketball. Um, my dad was someone who was like made a lot of money and then would like spend it all. And he had in the first sort of like 11 years what was great as he never let us, my sisters and me know that it sort of was in flux. But uh, when he at, at a certain point, like when I around when I was 13, it became apparent, oh, he did well 
we moved into this big, ridiculous house. No more Italian kids. No more stickball. Then it was just the Jews. No, but it was. <laughs> no, I would. Uh, no, we'd send the driver to get him to come over and play stickball. But what no, was it? it was. I'm kidding. You know. No. Uh, yeah. How many sisters you got? I have two sisters. And your dad's like a big deal. Yeah, my dad was. Uh, I mean, he discovered the love and spoonful. John yeah. Sebastian, who people say I look like him. Uh, yeah, my dad. I used to. My dad was. Uh, you know, he was a kid. He never finished college, and he was a record producer. He. Wrote, but where did he grow up? New York Queen, City, Queens. Queens. Yeah. So he was part of the like what in the sixties. Yeah, I mean, he had a hit record as a singer, a novelty record called Yogi. Yeah. It like went to top 10 yeah. when he was 18. And so he was a music business like 58. guy. 58. Yeah. yeah. He was a music business was guy. Was he a musician? Nah, not really. He just wrote a hit record? Yeah, he wrote a hit record, record and sang a novelty record. But yeah. he, would agree. He, uh, he had great taste in knowing, he was able to identify what, what songs were going to be hit songs. Uh, he always kind of knew, knew that. And when he was very young, uh, he met Don Kirshner playing basketball somewhere. and uh, Before Kirshner was anything? No, Kirshner had just sort of been on the rise. As? Uh, uh, like a public, as yeah. a before, way before Don Midnight, Kirshner's rock concert right, was rock on television. Concert, yeah. But it was when Kirshner was, uh, yeah, had this big publishing company. Yeah. And he That's hired, where the money is, right? Music publishing. Yeah. Well, he hired uh, my dad to be a songwriter and- so my father was uh, writing in one cubicle with his this guy named Donald Rubin, his his best friend and partner. And then in the cubicle next to them was Carol King and Jerry Goffin. And next to Carol King and Jerry Goffin, you know, would have been like Lieber a, and Stoller, Sadako. They were in another floor. Oh. But essentially, every aren't you person in that building? There, uh, yeah, I will, yeah. Sometimes I record in the Brill Building. They were in that one and one next door. And then one day, Kirshner Kirshner would call them in and say, "Hey, what do you think of this song? What do you think of that?" And then finally called them in one day and said, "Listen." Uh, you are the worst songwriter I've ever <laughs> yeah. put under contract, but you really know what hit songs are. And by the way, I'm selling my company, and uh, but I have to stay here. You become the president. He made my dad, when I, my dad was like 24, the president of his publishing company. Of a music and publishing And said, stop company. being a songwriter. You're the guy who's going to pick songs from now on. And, and so that's what he did. And, and how, where did he go from there? He did that, uh, and then he and his friend Donald left uh, at a certain point and started their own company with that, you know, uh, where they signed Tim Harden, the great folk singer and songwriter, and The Spoonful, and uh, the guys who wrote the Turtles hits, and they made those records. Uh -huh. So they did all that sort of like 60s pop rock stuff. Mm -hmm. And then he had a long, incredible career in the music business. He was very focused on pop music after a certain point, so he made a lot of Barbara Streisand's records. Uh, he he was, made them in that he produced he them? He was the executive producer of them. He would like pick the songs with Barbara, sit there in the studio with the producers. The big records? Them. Yeah, a lot of the big, like the Barry Gibb record. Right. All those records. But I mean, he produced in the studio. He's the guy who produced If I Were a Carpenter for Bobby Darren. Hands on the knobs. Yeah, for Bobby Darren. Uh, if I Were a Carpenter, which was written by his songwriter, Tim Harden, and Bobby Darren talks about it in a special, how he convinced him, he and his partner, to, to do it. But so my dad, that, the life I lived, I grew up a lot in recording studios no hollywood no showbiz so we wouldn't go to any parties uh we had a very it is showbiz though oh yeah but he would only that he was very clear and my mom was too uh, my mom would always say to me uh who knows if any of this or anything is going to be left you better figure out how to do it on your own and uh you better not count on any of this being here in any way but also but did he still own the publishing of some songs he, no, at a certain point, he didn't. He sold really? them. Oh. I mean, no, he did. He did fine. Uh, he was huge. Oh, dude, he was a gigantic. He was. He became like. 
He was one of the biggest independent music publishers who built their own thing. And that's where all the money is in music. Oh, yeah. I'm not... I, <laughs> Yeah, he did. He, my, my dad did great. There's no question. How's about he it. now? He's awesome. He's 75, I think, or 74. Yeah. What's he doing? I talk to him like every day. What's he up to? Well, when he was like uh, 50 years old, I think he got fired. His last job was running EMI North America, and he got fired and, uh, and had a, I think he was, he got fired, you know, paid out, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. But everybody who runs a giant record company, especially then, they all got, you know, you get, that's one of those jobs, you get yeah. fired, basically. And he reinvented himself over the course of five years and ended up, like, running companies that had nothing to do with entertainment. So, uh, I mean, it's 25 years ago, you know. Yeah. Uh, he ended up, like, running Martha Stewart's company. Oh, yeah. He was chairman of the board of that company. Yeah, he's done all sorts of- Sort of a, a CEO a guy. consultant, mm -hmm. board member- uh, likes to work loves to work and you know still i mean it's it's the greatest thing he's uh he's the most practical uh quick answers no bullshit person no airs i mean he really is a guy who uh you know was a queen's kid couldn't get through college because he was like uh, gambling and fucking around went into the coast guard so that his parents wouldn't know he failed out of college you know, gotten almost got basically court-martialed out, but has a very, very clear eye and incredible bullshit detector. And really, at the time, uh, he had these great ears. He just knew. Yeah, some people have that. He just knew. So you, so you grew up around this music business, and you grew up around you, you know the 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 enchanting nature of the music business, and also the business itself. Yeah, and you were sort of like. Uh, your dad was this big mocker, which he was. Yeah. And he grew up with money out on the island. Yeah, and it was, I'll tell you, it was um, something in me hated it. I was like, uh, I never talk about this, so it's good. I'm happy to do it. I, I said, what, I'm what, hated what, music? No, I hated uh, living in a big house. I hated, uh, like, it, I hated when I would have people come over that... I know that feeling. We lived that I way. know that feeling to a certain degree. Because, you know, you go to school, depending where you go to school, you got friends. And, like, uh, you know, my parents, that no, it was not comparable money, but we had a big house and we had a, a pool. And there was something, it, it, there was, uh, it was embarrassing in some weird yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I lo obviously, I loved, and as, uh, I, 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 uh, what an incredible gift it was that I never had to worry about, like, where my meals were coming from or how I was going to pay for college. Did you think about that then? My mother was good at, uh, my mom was very good at, she, she died six years ago, and, uh, but she was incredibly good at pointing that stuff out. But what were you, what, what did you hate? Oh, yeah, I hated um, the value kind of that was, I hated like the big, I hated the bigness of it, and I hated the grandiosity of it, because I hadn't done anything to earn it. So it wasn't mine. So like, you got a car. Oh yeah, I got a car. Like, Good I car, well car. What was your first I, car? I, I, oh dude, I got uh, you know, like a, whatever you I, wanted. Yeah, it didn't. Well, no, not like they weren't <laughs> gonna give me a Porsche, but I. But it was weird too. I'll tell you because starting at a very young age. I think partially in reaction to it, partially because my dad was so good at from a, a super young age, he would have me like come in anytime I wanted to the city. I could sit in any meeting. Right. He would do this great thing, even when I was 11, 12 years old. You know, let's say he was having a meeting with some uh, some people who wanted to 
play songs for him or a producer who wanted to produce an act yeah. or an artist. Yeah. He would have me sit in the meeting and I was always a pretty good talker and he would say, uh, listen guys, mm-hmm. you can say any fucking thing you want in front of the kid. He would say, you know, he's heard it all. And, and he would make me a participant. He would bring me to the recording studio at two in the morning. And uh, I knew all the studio players. I knew every bass player, like every drummer. And those he, were the cool guys, right? Oh, it was the yeah. I mean, that was the great. How old were you? Starting at like nine. Yeah. And uh, and I guess they would put away the joints when I showed up until I was like fourteen. Then sometimes they would still get. My dad would never, but those guys would still get would get fucked up around me. But they didn't when I was really little. Who were these guys? Which albums were you talking about? Uh, I mean, it was like the guys, a bunch of the guys who became Toto. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was like you know David Hungate and mm-hmm. Steve Lukather and Jeff Porcaro and uh, Skunk Baxter. Yeah, and um, I mean those guys were all super cool to me. Like, uh, David Foster, mm-hmm. who you know was uh, when Josh Groban was in here, he was talking about how David Foster was this giant yeah. uh, music guy. Yeah. So, but at a at a young age, at sixteen, I started doing things that um, helped make a lot of money for my father, and uh, and that was great. Then I felt like, all right, I was you earning. I something. was like helping, like. Um, I was managing these folk acts, and I, I had at this sixteen. Kid, yeah, and who? I was. This kid named okay, so this kid named Ethan Hurwitz, uh, which sounds like a star. He was a good songwriter. So you were this precocious kid whose dad was this big deal, and you kind of got music because you were living in music, and you knew what your dad did. So you're like, I'm going to manage bands. Yeah, and I started managing bands like young, like getting them gigs and trying to get them recorded. You know, people were using your name's name, your dad's name. I mean, I wasn't, but I had a last name that they. I'm sure it helped, but also it's so funny to have a 13 or 14 year old kid calling and being serious that I'm sure people were humoring it. Bookering them at clubs? But like, so here, I'll tell you that. So like, for instance, uh, when Eddie Murphy was in his first year as a featured player on SNL, mm-hmm. he had a gig at a club near my house. Now, this was a club that was called My Father's Place. It's a legendary place out of Long Island. Yeah, like yeah. All the bands played it. Yeah. Uh, and I had, had made a deal with the guy there, this guy named Epi Epstein, who owned that club. This He was a giant guy uh, yeah. there would always be pictures of Epi in hot tubs with girls of yeah. indeterminate age uh-huh. I'd made a deal with him I'd promote concerts on the weekends for kid bands playing for kid audiences during he, the day yeah like on a Saturday afternoon yeah. so and, you were a wheel dealer well yeah and but I so as a result when Eddie Murphy was going to play at mm-hmm. this club I had a folk singer kid open for him and the folk singer kid got booed off the stage I was 16 <laughs> 10th grade and the folk singer got booed off the stage. Uh, yeah. And it was a horrible night for him. Eddie came out and destroyed. And I snuck backstage afterwards. And I went up to Eddie and I said, listen, you should be making albums. Yeah. And at that time, I guess Lauren Michaels didn't own everything. Right. That the guys on SNL didn't. Eddie was only a featured player. He hadn't yet fully exploded. He was yeah. still just playing a little club. Right. And I found his manager backstage. And I said, Eddie should be making records. Was it the guy from the comic strip? Bob Wax. And I ended up working it out that my... I woke my dad up in the middle of the night and I ended up working it out that they all met up the next day and Eddie's first three comedy albums were like on my dad's thing. Really? Yeah. And so at that point, I then started feeling like, okay, well, I'm, you know, in some way yeah. uh, contributing. So you think this is my ticket? This is what I'm going to do? I'm well, going to be my I dad's love it. guy? Yeah, that's what I always figured. I always figured I was just going to end up uh, being in the music thing like I figured oh I'll be you had a, a record you, producer you I'll be an A&R person I know the I know well, what that this was an, is you just did A&R with yeah. him so that's I, all it takes to do A&R right basically that's it 
So and I then figured, you get points, right? Yeah, you get points. Did you, you get, get points on the Eddie? Not Murphy on Eddie, but later I did, but not on Eddie. Why didn't you, Dad, tell you, throw you a bone? Well, what did I just tell you? Sixteen years of living in the big giant house and everything. Said, what right, do? So I put you a go, lot of food on the table. You it. He took me to Don Pepe's a lot of Sunday nights for a pasta. I'm not gonna, even, that would no, have been ballsy if you ask him. I didn't. Yeah, well, you give me my points. Uh, but you know what, man? You know what was so great? Imagine what? being 16. I mean, I got to then go to the Delirious show, right? Right. And go sit there in the front, and I knew Eddie, and I got to bring my friends was back. Was that your first experience with comedy? Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I love, no. Uh, my first experience with comedy, David Steinberg and my dad were really good friends. David um, knew that I liked, I loved comedy. I loved Steve Martin. I was a, loved comedy as a kid. And uh, that's probably why I was set up to get how, how different Eddie was in a way, or like what a star Eddie was, because I knew a lot. I, I kind of like was around a lot of comedy. But when I was 14, David Steinberg said, hey, I'm going to bring you to New York City tonight. Uh there's a guy performing and at Caroline's and he's either going to be incredible or Caroline's the, the one downtown. Yeah, the original. He goes, the supper club. He's either going to be incredible or he's going to be horrible but uh, either way he's a genius and you're going to see something that was Gilbert. Mm-hmm. And it really was like one of those things like seeing that made me understand the whole world entirely. Because you know. I mean the first time I met you was with Havy. Yeah. Well at, yeah. At the, comic, at the comedy cellar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I don't know, six years ago, maybe. Was it? You were upstairs, and you were like this guy hanging around with Havy, and they, and I was like uh, kind of a dick to you. Probably well, you were asking me about. Well, yeah, you were because you, like, you were asking me about movies. Like he was like, "Oh, my friend behind's a screenwriter and director." Yeah. And you're like, "Oh, really? What movie? Really? Yeah, what? Yeah. What? What kind of movies?" And then the worst thing is when I said ones that were actually successful movies. That was worse for you. Yeah. First, you were skeptical, yeah. then it went from skeptical to why the fuck does he get to do that? Yeah, that was that what you read. Is that it what was said? hilarious. Is that, what, I, is that what you said from me? I had met you before, but because uh, I, I was there that night that you and Havy had difficulty with one another, and uh, when you know you went long. Yes, uh, but so I saw Gilbert, and then I was around comedy, and then I was someone who wanted to be a comic and couldn't quite get up the guts to do. You it. You never tried it. I later I did. I did it for a year and a half. You did stand up. Yeah, for a year and a half. When was that? How did I miss that? I did it. Uh, I did it like eight years ago, man. After I'd already made all the like tons of movies. You tell me you did it at, at like forty. Yeah, that's when I did it. What are you nuts? What, I, you, I, I did it for a year and a half, not on the weekends, but I was working during the week at stand up. So how'd your wife feel about that? Was she equally supportive? She was like, "Finally, fucking do it for God's sake!" Oh, so you did have one of those things? You no, that was like, "Go talking. fucking do it," because Havy and I. You had nothing to lose then. Uh, now you know that to get up on those stages. No, nah, I don't want to hear about it. You were comfortable. Oh, that's really you think? That's what you think. I think that like, all right. So you made you made your money. You always had a few bucks. You, there was nothing on the line, and you, you know you got over the stage fright and you wrote your jokes. And you, what did you really think you were going to tour? Uh, you know, it's real. I really had a moment. Here's what happened. I was really blocked writing Solitary Man. I was like halfway through it, and I was super blocked. I watched it. I uh, thought, yes, I know. I liked it. Thank you. It's a ballsy movie. Thank you. Yeah, it took me fucking four years to write it. It's a I, ballsy movie though. Thanks, man. Yeah, no, and I felt you'd relate to it somehow. Yeah, I did. And like, I felt you'd relate to it on both sides, really. <laughs> I felt you would relate to it as the son, like as the, you know, you'd relate to it from Jenna's perspective uh-huh. and from uh, Michael's perspective. Well, let's go, let's, before we get to this, I mean, you know, I'm glad you did stand up and I'm glad you got out, but I, uh, but because, you know, you don't want to be that guy, do you? What do you want to do? It helped you like get some courage. I got through. Me? It helped me really break through a bunch of shit. Right, man. it was yeah. huge to yeah. do because you it's know like bombing. Me and singing. I I, could, I didn't. I wanted to sing publicly for my whole life, and I was petrified. But you have to back. You have to back up at it. I know. I heard you talking about that the other day when you were talking to someone on your podcast uh, on the show about um, 
how you're uncomfortable singing in public, but you've done it. You've done it on the podcast. Right, but it's all very recent. It was a terror. Like, I I just broke that cherry like three years ago on Greg Barron's show where I just, you know, it, but it was an amazing thing to do. Like, because if you have this fear and you have this desire to do something for your entire life and it's something in your heart, but there's just, it's really just basic wall of fear that if you just break through that wall and you're like no this is this is i'm here now and then it never goes back well, the wall never goes back well yeah i mean i was a horribly that's the thing i was a crushingly blocked person until i was 30 that was really the thing when i had to to, to do to when you went downstairs go downstairs and start but what were you this. doing you were in the music business yeah and i had i had uh i had done fine in the music business you know well, where did you go from eddie murphy so where'd you go to what'd you do you, you're 16 you you, you help sign Eddie murphy's deal your dad's a big shot and where do you end up going well, yeah to college? i, I want to say you know and it was largely my own choice because the thing you even said about being you know you were made these movies you had some bucks in your pocket you always did i mean the truth is that because i made money for myself when i was 21 which i'll tell you um i didn't at that time i didn't take I didn't have money from anyone but myself, my wife and I. That was another, like another piece of it. You know, when you ask your about choice, this, yeah, my well, my choice. My father's a generous person, but I think it's you get to be you're an adult. Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean my dad's never said, "Hey, come on a family vacation," or he right. wouldn't sure, offer no, yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. But I mean, um, I, my wife and I have like lived on what we do the whole time, and it was really important. You yes, got to really important to me, yeah, no matter what. Yeah. To live that way. Well, especially um, when you come from a lot of money because that kills people. Well, that like was if you a, don't have personal yeah. value system around that, you know, you, who knows how the hell you turn out. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. I, you know, I knew I would hate myself, essentially. Uh, I would hate myself if I didn't, from a, a young age, just like go and figure it out. But the battle... So, yes, I, I went to college. Uh, I was always... Uh, I was never a great student, but I did a lot of different stuff. So I went to a good school, not an incre- you know, I went to Tufts, which is like a good college. I lived over there. In Somerville? Mm-hmm. I lived on Cottage Ave. No, you didn't. I really? did. That's hilarious. I think I lived in a house that Tracy Chapman lived in. She lived, I, I believe you. I mean, I remember the how she lived in at the end there. So, I mean, that was the the thing. You know, when I went to college... Um, I will say that the Long Island part of my life was just an incredible bubble, right? Even when you ask that question, like I did have an awareness uh, and I was, um, I had friends from every socioeconomic group the, the whole time, but you are in a bubble when you grow up in the North Shore of It's Long very Island. specific, man. It is. It's yeah. a very specific thing. And Did you have to lose the accent? Yeah, I, it, it always mattered to me not to have it. <laughs> Even at a young age. <laughs> He's surrounded by like uh, I always was a reader. You know, like I always read everything. So I never- You don't read as a Jap. Right. You know, I read everything. And but so but you, you, must have fought, you must have run from being a Jap. Yeah, I'm sure there are pictures of me wearing fila and uh, you know, all that stuff. With but, your yes. polo shirt turned up, the collar because, turned no, up. No, but then Van, I mean, it doesn't, this is all, but no. No, I it's wore, important. I wore Capizios, man. Uh-huh. I went to the whole sure. other like place, but- in college, I became very, as people did, you know, I'm sure you remember the divestment movement uh-huh. uh, when- the, From South Africa? Yeah, because, yeah. you know, the, the colleges were invested mm-hmm. um, in companies doing business in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of us, especially these Northeastern liberal arts colleges, felt it was unacceptable. So I kind of was one of the two or three people who led that movement at my school. And in doing that, meaning I organized like all campus boycott classes to protest it, got speakers to come in. I was really like- um, 
at the front of that with I don't maybe there were five or six of us who really like uh, did it and probably even a, a bigger group of um really radicalized people who fought uh, protested everything mm-hmm. I really only was in involved in in that that was the one that mattered to me because that just seemed egregious right uh but in doing that a friend of mine a guy named Pete Zizzo who I grew up with and who also went to Tufts uh said you know there's a folk singer you should get to play at this rally you're organizing yeah and that's when i saw it that's when i went to this little coffee house that was on campus and saw tracy chapman play and um that was uh you know a truly epiphanic moment my entire my entire world shifted on its axis man it was like it was like in a movie uh i was crying everything the entire focus of my life up to that point was one thing and from the moment she walked on that stage and started singing for the next three years that only thing I cared about was that, you know, everything changed. And so, so you were a guy that was a socially active, political, uh, radical leader. And then you saw Tracy Chapman. I remember like, going up to future. her. I remember going up to her and saying, uh, and we were never friends by the way. And, uh, same I could barely same. two years older. I could bear it. She's two years older. I could barely talk to her. You know, she was, she was everything. I mean, if you think about it, uh, she was every single thing that I knew deep in my soul. Like I could never, I could never have lived or understood really the life, you know, raised by a single mother, black, Cleveland, poor, race riots started around her when she was a little girl. Like the totality of what led to that and then just the extraordinary talent, the ability to then, uh, the, you know, the mind that she had and the voice that she had and the ability to translate uh, that experience into these songs and I really did I, I I remember sitting there and um it's interesting to me because you come from this like you know your father's focus and was post the 60s folk thing but like everything it seemed that he was doing came out of that but the relevance of folk music was gone but you knew the history of it I did for so, sure right yes. so so somehow or another you were transported to you know 1965 yeah and you were in the middle of a of a political struggle in a way and it, it it's it, it was like you were given the gift of a of a of a liberal jewish catharsis yes and you're no you're totally right i was and and yet and i will say and 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 it became it was just immediately clear to me that uh, she was among the most gifted people walking the earth and i could not understand how i remember i stayed up all night i walked around I went up to her and I said, listen, I'm, I'm here because I, I want you to, and it's funny, we had met, we were in a class together that some moron taught and we were sitting, we would sit next to each other, but we never spoke. And I said, hey, um, you have to come play this rally. Here's what we're doing. She said, okay, I will. Yeah. And I said, but, uh, and I remember exactly what I said. And I said, I said, um, I've been managing bands since I was 13 and producing demos and working in record companies every summer. And, um, and I really have worked I said, well, I really have worked to be my own person, but you're so extraordinary that I really think that uh, my dad can help you too and that we should uh, find a way to do something together. And she said, um, I'll play the rally. That was it. And I spent two years following her around. I mean, I, so I, I, she I was unrepresented. Went, oh yeah, unrepresented and, college and kid. W- didn't want, wasn't ready at first. Said mm-hmm. like, I, you know, I think she was a, she was maybe a senior and I was a sophomore. I was a sophomore for sure. And uh, she said, um, she played the rally the next day, which was my, uh, you know, the sanity test, right? Because I basically had stayed up 
Then I watched her the next day and I, it was even better. I couldn't believe, I mean, honestly, Mark, it was talking about a revolution. It was those songs, not Fast Car, but it was talking about a revolution and Baby Can I Hold You Tonight, all those songs from the first album. Half the songs from the first album. And how'd the crowd respond? They, well, that's the thing that the, it taught me, I'll say this, some of the most valuable lessons of those, those three years mm-hmm. taught me things that to this day uh, give me an incredible amount of strength because um, she wasn't interested in, in all this at first. And my dad wasn't interested because I wasn't a great student. Uh, and I was so dist- easily distracted by all this stuff. And he was like, uh, I'm sure she's great to go to school. You know, I don't want to hear about this bullshit. I'm sending you up to college. He didn't graduate college. I'm sure he was scared to death. I wouldn't graduate college. He, he really wanted me to graduate he had college. To. Yeah. Um, but so I did a real record business thing, which was I went, I had heard that Tracy had recorded for copyright purposes mm-hmm. songs at the radio station mm-hmm. at Tufts. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend of mine walk me to the radio station and he distracted the DJ. Yeah. And I stole the cart that she, you know, radio carts. <laughs> yeah. I stole the cart. Right, they look like eight tracks. I went in the back. Mm-hmm. I copied the cart onto a cassette and I put the cart back. And then I had a cassette of Talking About Revolution. Uh, acoustic demo. so you, you did a little dirty business i did i did and uh i took that back to new york i flew back to new york and i t- uh, in a or, panic uh, with your father like the next day or what very soon yeah because I, I had the tape and i listened to it i mean you know what you're like at that i just listened to the tape a hundred times right and then I, I i remember exactly where i was I, I i played it for him and he just uh, you know to my dad's credit and at that time i mean the records he was making then were you know here you come again dolly parton and Samantha said he was making real pop records and was so far away from this and what she did and he heard it and he immediately said uh you're right she's <laughs> you're correct she's that good but it still took uh years I would go and follow her she would play these lesbian clubs all across New England and I would go alone and I would get mocked mercilessly by my friends at college you know and I would say who's gonna well, come you're obsessed. with me and they would go we're not going with you to New Hampshire to yeah. see and I would walk into a room and I'd be the only guy yeah. and it would be you know 200 women mm-hmm. staring at me and I'm sure that I was still you know I wasn't quite in the Capizios but I looked like a douchebag yeah. and uh, and eventually over time were you um, talking to her during this time? Yeah, she would see. Well, she would see me at every show. I mean, she'd be like, she would kind of smile, like, "Are you really? You're really here?" Like, uh, and uh, again, let me say, I could barely talk to her. We were never friends, uh, but she understood that I um, was messianic about her. That I was telling everybody and trying to find a way to bring more people. But in. But when you look back at it, what was the what was the combination of of you know being your father's son and looking for a hit record and being moved by the power of this artist what what was the well, ratio no i mean the question is great because it's all what led to me leaving the music business was ultimately all my sympathies uh all my sympathies were with the artist and i had to become i i instinctively every part of the process other than the moment of discovery and making records uh, was, I felt like, uh, dirty and gross and invo- and lying, and uh, the business did not exist in any way to serve these artists. I got well, Tracy in well, well, it's interesting guys. that, you know, because, like, innately my perception of you, which was, which was off, was that this guy likes to be around talent. Oh, you mean the night you met me? No, I'm just saying, well, yeah, but whatever. That, like, you know, that somehow or another, and it makes sense because of your father, that, you know, whatever the message is, that your appreciation of it was 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 very personal. 
that you know, like if somebody could express themselves you know in a complete way in a unique way that you know either you didn't feel like you had that or you 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 know you you just needed to be around that to feel like whole or to be part of something well yeah i mean by books and music and movies were the things that i and comedy those things were the things that i gave a shit about right that's what it's it sort of made you feel connected yeah but it was also the you know the thing julia cameron talks about the shadow artist in the artist way which is that uh but but at that time I didn't like at that time if you would have asked me I would have said I, I'll never be the person who's going to create this stuff. Right, that's what I mean. That at you, that time there was no but way you, that I thought I that I I thought that the people who could do that were touched and special, and that uh, no matter how much uh, I wished I could express it. I couldn't. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, that's who I was then, and it was t- that's torture, by the way. Yeah, but there's but like like if I read it, there's still some part of you that feels that. Well, no, I would say no, no. There's no part of the, the stand up. There's no part of it where I feel like. Um, I mean, I think I've written, directed, or produced 13 movies. Right. So I'm do. I mean, I do it. So you're now. all good. I know. I mean, all good. <laughs> No, every day I just wish you. No, no. I wish I were every day. This is true. I wish I were better at it every day. But you said that, that, you know, in that process with her over those three years that you I'll learned tell you, something I'll tell you. that guided your entire life or that there was a wisdom. Well, a huge, yeah, because well, it's something that's repeated itself, which is that um, when we, so I, finally I got them together. We all met. Who, you and your father? father but what, how'd you explain Tracy. to Tracy Chapman? That you, did, you, did you keep it a secret that you had the tape? That no, no, I told her. I told her. What did she say? She just, I mean, she she wasn't, she was a woman she, of few words. Right, but she also probably didn't believe your bullshit for a while. The whole time she didn't believe, I mean, the whole time. <laughs> who's this Jewish kid? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't even think, she wasn't like, who's this, she's like, who's this fucking, what is this? What does he care about this for? But eventually, I do believe that, uh, well, I know eventually we got together and then I uh, went into a studio with Tracy and recorded acoustic demos, like 20 songs, 22 songs. Cool. And Wait, after you met with your father, yeah, yeah. Then we uh, said, "Can we record demos?" What was the we moment where us- she finally relented? Yeah, I mean, it was. Did your dad nice. have to fly up? Oh, she flew down. Yeah, he flew up to see her. He flew up to see her for sure. Um, and she liked him, I think, immediately, and probably more than she liked me. You know, but, because but, he was uh, not conflicted. Like the thing you're talking about is, he was definitely unconflicted, and uh, uh. He was like, we can make a record. We did this. You're a great artist and we'll make a record. I was like, uh, you're the, you know, on the one hand. You're going to save the world. You save the world. And on the other hand, but sign on the, you know, like sign on the, I was sign on the dotted line because I see, I mean, it was a real split, right, Mm -hmm. for me. Um, Though I didn't know that then. Then I would have said to you and I would have meant it. It was only about her. Yeah, but there's also this, this, this interesting psychodynamic that, you know, like, this was you know you had this passion and commitment for for musical artists and your father was a a vehicle but this was also you know you're on your father's turf and you're doing a big thing well yeah but yes but to me you can make a hit record but to me this really big thing but you have to remember where the world was then when we made these demos and then tried to get her signed to a major label right because my dad had at that time a publishing company and a small production company couldn't didn't have didn't know how to couldn't Deliver a record, right? Couldn't, uh, wouldn't, didn't pay to record an album. Uh, we did demos and then went and shopped her for a label deal. 
And these- You and your dad. Yeah, these, well, for me and my, like separately and together. We were, because I had worked, because uh, I was so interested in it, like every summer I worked, I was always out watching bands. I knew people at every label because my father was, it's funny, you know, the way in which he was incredibly generous to me, although he would certainly like have been and paid for college and law school and all that stuff. But uh, the way was he would always, uh, a lot of guys who were successful, they want to smother the people around them. And he would always, like if I was going into a room or into a world, like go do your thing, man. Make it happen. Like, you were going to law school? I, later, I went to law school. Yeah, I, I did a lot of shit. I graduated law school, but I never practiced. Um, and... Uh, but that was later. That was for a whole different reason. That was when I was knew I had to leave music and do something that was uh, like real. And I was going to go. I wanted to practice civil rights law. That was what I was going to do. I read Morris D's book, A Season for Justice, mm-hmm. and that book blew my mind. And then right away at law school, I realized, well, this isn't the way to affect change. Uh, but I was already in, and I just I finished. I went at night. I was working full time, and I went at night. But did the Tracy lesson to get back to the 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 thing that. Uh, that I felt was ultimately such an empowering lesson, but miserable at the time. These A&R guys would come up, and women would come up to Boston. Uh, Tracy would perform in front of 300 people going crazy because she had built a real audience for herself in mm-hmm. New England. She would play all those songs with that voice. They would stand up and give her four encores. The A&R person would almost have tears in their eyes, and they would say to me, can I please meet her? I'm, I'm so blown away by this. And I would uh, say, yeah, so come back, meet her. I'd walk them to their car and they would say, you know, I can't sign her. And I'd say, what do you mean? What does that mean? And they'd say, well, I mean, no one's going to play it. No one's going to buy it. It's amazing. You, this, this woman is the real deal, but I would like a copy. Of, I'm glad I have the demo. They all passed except for one person, the guy at Electric Records, the president of Electric Records, Bob Krasnow. And even Bob... We, so then senior year of college, making the record, uh, that summer before senior year, uh, me and one other guy figured out who should produce the record, got rejected by tons of producers. I, I still know a bunch of these guys. I would take them out and try to convince them. And they all said like, this is never going to happen. And mm-hmm. how can this work? And no one cares about this kind of music. Mm-hmm. And we got this guy, David Kirshenbaum, to produce it. And every day they were FedExing me. We were, he was recording that album in LA. I was in Boston. They would send me every day the basic tracks and I'm a senior in college getting these tapes of this album being made mm-hmm. and giving my notes across. And I was the one doing it. Now, it's weird. I, I never talked to Tracy during that process. I only talked to the to Kirshenbaum. But like... What is your, 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 what is your credit on that record? Executive producer. Okay. And I had, a, that, I had a point on that album. Mm-hmm. So that... Okay, so you get that's when I had the. I mean, on that album, sure. I asked for and got a point. So, but, so, what you, so you're a senior in college. You're getting these records. And what's and, the lesson? Well, no. The lesson was that... Uh, Every we finished the album and go and present it to Electra and they say this is great and I remember it was a huge conference table and every single person stood up and said I can't get it played on my format and none of the stores I sell till will buy it and I remember my dad stood up and he said you guys all love it personally and they said yeah I play it. my wife loves it my husband loves it and he said then you're all out of your minds like what the fuck have you bought into go sell the record and the president of the record company the guy who walked us back my dad's office like around the corner and he walked us back and he said your father's insane Brian. Uh, if you sell 50,000 albums, you've won and started a career and done something important and beautiful mm-hmm. and never forget that. And uh, you know the thing sold 13 million albums worldwide. <laughs> and and it just, the experts, I, I realize the experts don't know any better than I do. Everyone's afraid. 
and they're all scared and they are especially when something touches that special place in them their instinct is to run from it but that's it's weird because what that means is that they're instinctively false instincts about what they think people want the public and that they're somehow insulated and unique in their emotions. Like if, if, cause all they do is look at the market. What's selling? What's selling? But What's selling? That has repeated itself. So over and over and over With again. With movies too. I'm, I mean, and I've, I've told this story before, but uh, I mean, you know, I, the stuff we're talking about now, I mean, this is deep history. I'm 48. I mean, this happened when I was 21 and 22. And, uh, you know, I left the music business at 30. So, the last 18 years have been far away from it, but I will say, you know, Rounders was rejected, that script, by every single agency in Hollywood. And the day that then Harvey Weinstein bought it, they all called us and all wanted to sign us. And they all rejected us and said it'll never be a movie and it's not, and then it becomes this really important cultural So the landmark. lesson is what? The experts are fucking wrong all the time. <laughs> they don't know the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers... Um, They're just concerned about keeping their job as the gatekeeper. Yeah, but it's as it all, you know that as the person doing the thing, um, it's very hard to not let it penetrate you. It's very hard for it not to be wounding mm-hmm. when because especially when you uh, invest so much in creating, mm-hmm. uh, it's very hard. And especially for young artists who are trying, and those are people who I try to talk to all the time. It's like uh, it's very easy to turn back. And to change fundamentally the th- what the thing is that you do uh, and to believe that their judgment is right because uh, on, on her business card, it says vice president mm. or on his, it says general manager. But in fact, um, most of the time, they don't fucking know. And also it's relative to your expectation as well. I mean, it, it's like if you're just passionate about what you're doing. It doesn't necessarily mean it's like this has got to sell to everyone in the world, but it is worthy. Well, yeah, I would never have said to you, "Oh, this album's going to sell um, ten million, over ten million copies." So, what happened to your life. relationship with her? What happened to her career? Well, she ended up. I mean, that you know, a couple you years later, she records? had that huge song, "Give Me One Reason." That was a song we had demoed t- together. All did those you do years all her earlier. records? No, my dad's. I'm sure my dad had. A, I only was involved in the first one. Yeah. Um, Although songs that she and I had recorded and like that I'd helped choose which ones ended up being on some subsequent records. No, man, uh, we did not have any relationship, really. I mean, I, I saw her. She definitely, when she was recording the second album, I went to the studio once the producer, mm-hmm. the same guy called me. And I the last time I saw Tracy was then, so I was probably 24. That's interesting. And no, uh, Was there gratitude? Was there... You know... It's, I will say this, my gratitude to her is so enormous because my entire life changed. And the last, what I said to her, I feel that, I think she felt, she had lawyers and everybody made sure of it, but I think she felt uh, somehow that, why didn't she own her song? You know, why did, why was there a publishing deal? Why did we have points on her? You know, I think she felt, uh, though never articulated this to me, I never understood Exactly. I've had to intuit what her uh, story is. And I've tried a couple years ago to reach out to her uh, and say like, hey, let's meet. And uh, I still very much want to because I have incredibly high regard for her. Uh, I was absolutely, um, you know, hurt by it for sure that uh, I had spent so much time and energy uh, in trying to get her music to the world i never i don't think she ever knew that um 
how deeply involved I was in the making of that first album. Mm -hmm. The musicians know and the producer knows. But I don't think she ever knew because I, and it's my failing, uh, I thought she was so many leagues and levels beyond me in terms of depth, intellect, um, experience, authenticity, experience, yeah. that I could never talk to her, mm. really. Other than to sort of, uh, uh, in a very inchoate way, say like, oh, you're, you know, I understand what you're doing and um, it's really important and I want to help you. So that all definitely... Uh, that's what I could communicate but I don't think she knows that like you know when they recorded talking about a revolution uh, they recorded it uh, you know 10 beats uh, a minute too slow and and I you know got them all on the phone and had them redo it and resend me the track or the mixes or the secret like there's no way because I was too scared to talk about it I was 20 or 21 years old I couldn't um, I couldn't figure out how to and she never responded to you uh. Someday, I'll run into her somewhere. The last time I saw her was at that, that the studio in the parking lot, and she rolled down her window and she smiled at me. And I said, uh, "It was out here," and uh, I said, "Thanks." I said, "Listen, you really, uh, no matter what, you know, you, my life's forever changed for having seen you, and I'll be for forever grateful." And she said, "Listen, we changed each other's lives, and I feel the same way about that." That's just, so we had that moment. At, That's good. Yeah, you know, it was a long time ago, and and I know I know that whatever the narrative she has, and her narrative may be correct. You know, I can't. Uh, I I will say that um, that having been there to help do that, and she would have found her way in some way. Maybe me. I mean I, uh, what, who knows what her way what, what her idea of it was? Yeah, uh, but I I do uh, and and it was and in so many ways because ultimately having done that um, released me from having to uh, compete with this idea of what my dad did in that business and that I had to do it and it was enabled me to go okay I that happened I did it. Uh huh. And I, you know, had a few more of those things, but like, so they're in so many ways. Uh, but if you're asking me, is uh, is a part of me, is there a part of me that's still heartbroken about what I can't understand that uh, what happened? Sounds like that parking lot thing could be enough. Yeah. What exactly do you expect? I mean, some you said she didn't uh, that talk as a much. Grown up, uh, I guess I expect that as a grown up person now, I would love to know the ways in which uh, I let her down. Right, I would like to know what part of that wasn't communicated. Yeah, properly. but that might just be your your, your own desire to uh, confirm something that is a fundamental element of your personality of not thinking you're good enough. Sure, maybe there isn't any of that. I mean, I mean, gratitude's a big deal. If somebody is genuinely grateful, and even in that moment she expressed that to you, and you felt it, uh, maybe she's transcended whatever the hell you need to feed yourself loathing. Sure. <laughs> Sure, I, I'll buy all that. <laughs> I, I like that you're doing this because I always do this exact thing for people. But yeah, uh, that's possible. Um, uh, but then also, just as a on, a on a human level, this thing did happen that uh, was a really significant thing, and and I have, you know, I have. It's one of the only things about which I have very unresolved feelings because I've throughout my life because I've uh, always tried to like own it wherever yeah. I was I've tried to like you know square accounts yeah I, I okay yeah it, it sounds like it might be square okay great 
You know, I, I mean, whatever, like whatever, like a lot of times our emotional needs can't be met because you, know, you, you might be making something up. Yeah, maybe she just didn't give a shit. I don't maybe know exactly. Yeah, who knows? Maybe like whatever you you what you whatever your assumptions are about what effect you had in a negative way or or where you where you failed her, they might be your projections. You're running on no evidence. The it sounds like the last exchange you had with her, you shared like you know a, a mutual moment of gratitude. Yeah, and and but you're sort of like no, but I must have. Well, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, Why? no, I guess it's the uh, desire, you know, you know what it is. It's the desire, if it's either the, des- uh, the desire to, yes, to confirm worst, uh, worst self-opinion or uh, it's the desire to be seen, you know, it's the desire to be sure. sort of like seen. Yeah, and, but I, I also think that you might be, you know, the way you're talking about your initial relationship with her, even though it was one-sided, I mean, you were consumed with this person. Yes, that's so, accurate. So, that's so. Accurate. So, I mean, you, you know, whatever it was, you know, heartbreak is relative. I mean, those feelings that you had, uh, you know, they, they weren't unrequited in a way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, for sure. They were. So, uh, yeah. And then, uh, and I guess Norm, and then the fact that, uh, I guess it's this, right? The fact yeah. that everything I said to her would come true, came true. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh and so then I would, some part of me wants to be able to just school, like uh, understand that on balance, like on balance was this bad for, like on balance was this bad for her or was it good for her? What would your dad have done? Oh, I mean, he would say they always break your heart. Yeah, move they, on. Yeah, move the fuck on, man. <laughs> they're going to break their heart. They're, they're going to break your heart. But I was built, I'm built slightly differently yeah. than he is. So you were in the music business for another eight years? Nine yeah. years? Yeah. What'd you do? Like, you quickly. A&R for different labels. And, uh... So you were the guy who went out and found the things. Yeah, and I found a couple of them. Like and who? I, things that became hits. I was sometimes ahead of it. So, like, I signed David Gray to his first American deal. I signed uh-huh. Five for Fighting to their first American... To their, like, a deal John and Drowsing and Five for Fighting. This guy, Josh Cadison, sold a couple million albums that I signed. And then, uh... And then as I wrote, you know, kind of, like, um, advanced up the ranks, um... This guy who I brought in brought d'angelo to me and we signed him together and that was a big deal thing it's uh, a tough business because like you know these a and r guys they have their run so if you weren't gonna gun him for executive or you know some it's brutal because but no the, the part that's bad is that especially then the artists were treated so shittily and that it was what well, it was impossible uh from it was really difficult to marshal the forces for me to uh to um, get them all to understand what was really special about these uh, artists. So like David Gray, who then, you know, two years later sold five million albums. um, To him, I couldn't keep my word because I told him I flew around the world to to sign him. I'd heard his little record that he'd made in England and uh, spent a year and a half like going, hey, when you're going to get out of this little deal, come make a record in America. And then I couldn't keep my word to him because I couldn't get them to put the records in the stores. I couldn't. So, but... But I mean, what started to happen, Mark? Yeah, was that the when my son was born, mm-hmm. uh, which was really when I was almost thirty. When my son was born, I realized that I wouldn't. Um, this it's good. I journaled a lot then, so like I actually know this is what I was thinking. It's it sounds almost too pat, but what I realized was I'm miserable. Uh, I don't want to be the guy telling somebody uh, to rewrite their chorus and then helping them rewrite the chorus and then 
you know, telling him, oh, that bridge is really the second verse and the second verse is the bridge. Um, I realized that I would not be able to tell my kids that they could uh, follow whatever their dream in life was if I wasn't. And I knew that if I didn't find a way to become uh, somebody who did it, who wrote and made movies, that I would have... I would never get over it. What was your dream? But that was the dream initially? Yeah. So the the music thing was just sort of like, all right, dad? All my friends were right. What I realized was every person, it wasn't, it's not um, the thing you said about talent. All my friends were writers. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to be around people who wrote. And I was that, I was the guy who people would give their stuff to, to make better. And, oh, hey, producer, how should I fix it? What should I edit? But um, I was a horribly blocked writer. I couldn't get five pages you know i'd write five great pages and then i couldn't write anything else so in, in essence the 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 opportunity like the the tracy chapman event was was innate because you grew up in it and it, and it served a lot to to sort of honor your father honor yourself level the playing field you did what you had to do and and you know you realize you couldn't be your dad on some level even though that business was your business and then you found this you knew this other thing was going on I did. I, I realized, uh, I just realized I was miserable. Like I just hated myself. I went to law school because I felt like, oh, all these people in the record business are, uh, you know, a bunch of fucking idiots. And also I'm wasting my talent and I'm wasting uh, my brain and nobody reads and nobody uh, knows what's going on in the world and they don't care. And even when, I, so I went to law school where a lot of great people, I was at night, which was awesome at Fordham at night uh, because you have a lot of cops who are trying to better themselves. Like you have right. a great crew of people at yeah. night and it's a great law school. So, uh, but uh, still I had this other thing that was like eating me alive. I st- never smoked cigarettes in my life. I've never had substance, you know, luckily yeah. no substance issues. I started fucking smoking at thir- who starts smoking at 29. Yeah. I remember sitting in my office in the record business, smoking a cigarette, fat, miserable. I, you know, knew this artist had called me from the middle of the country. The records weren't in the stores. They're playing it in store without the records there. Oh, you were dealing with that shit? Oh, yeah, because they, I would, you know, you give your word to these people. Come and sign uh, and I'll protect you and I'll, yeah. and then you can't and it's helpless. But all that was the sort of like um, outer layer stuff. I knew that I had to see if I was the thing or I wasn't the thing and that I would never be happy if I couldn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't chase it, I would never forgive myself. And is that 30 or 40? 30. 30. And so that's I, when he said to your wife, I got to do this. Well, she'd been saying it to me for years. She was like, you're supposed to be writing and making movies and making television. You're no, not supposed to do this. Not and, getting fat and smoking, well, heading for a heart yeah, attack what land. Are you, yeah, what are you doing? Worrying about records. Well, he was like, yeah, why? And, uh, and I went to my best friend who has been my best friend since we're 14 years old and or I'm a year and a half older uh, and he had been uh, writing and trying to do it he had written a novel that later got published he knew uh, he would send me screenplays sometimes of people and I said I really let's do this thing let's figure out how to write a movie and he said all right we're gonna read these things you know read the art he gave me the artist way he said do the artist no way. Sid Field gonna unbl- well I hate that shit no right. none of that he said, read the artist's way because that'll help you get unblocked. And then I had also started playing poker all the time. Uh, but in LA, I walked into a poker club in New York, looked around, and it was the second one of those like moments. Like I looked at it, I called him in the middle of the night and I go, really the, thir- the third thing like that professionally. I walked in, looked at the poker room. It was this illegal poker room. I heard the way the people were talking. I saw how they dressed. Yeah. And I was like, this is a, how has no one made the movie? Right. 
And so Dave and I just met every morning and wrote that script. Did you have a poker problem? Almost. <laughs> uh, any other gambling is really bad for me. Yeah. If I start to play blackjack or craps, I'll lose everything. I'll ask you for your money. I have to I'll go take my, I'll max out my thing. If I only stick to poker, everything's fine. There's a little skill set to poker. It's different. Yeah. But I became obsessive about it. And so, you know, then we did have this miraculous thing of, uh, you know, it got rejected, but we were... Rounders. Yeah. And that, but, you know, it, getting to make that movie, which really did start, there have been documentaries about it. It really started the poker boom. And although the movie wasn't a hit in theaters, you know, it became a real cultural thing that matters to a group of people sort of like you know men 45 and under right. really really give a shit about that movie and then i you know was able to to do this thing um that got you that in as a writer ago. that was 18 years ago and yeah. then you, you wrote a bunch of other movies yeah then wrote other movies and produced and directed well and no i know but like these some of these are big movies like when you do a movie like walking tall yeah, how much time do you spend with the original? No, Walking Tot was a four-week rewrite. Oh, that, that was we it? Did. And, uh, no, but like Ocean's 13, that's a real, you know, that Dave and I wrote that movie. Yeah. Uh, we're on set of that movie every day. Right. And yeah, that was, inc- I mean, that was- That's a big movie. Yeah, that was an incredible thing to be able to be a part of and to do. And you know, how do you, that opportunity, so what was that, the third in the series or the second? Third. So that, it's a franchise already. You oh, know yeah. the guys. Oh, it was huge. It must be fun to be able to write for the characters it was as they stand. Giant pressure writing it because the only you know we would have if we didn't write a script that they wanted to make, we would have been everyone would have just blamed us. Was that your first real big money movie as a writer? Well, in what way? You mean getting paid a lot of money? Yeah. No, we got started getting paid a lot soon after Rounders. Yeah. Round, yeah, because because you start getting hired. The way Hollywood works, if you if you write a movie that uh, people regard and that has like cool swaggery dialogue in their mind, Hollywood's mind, then they'll you ask you to do that. Well, then they want you to do that on their big movie. But I'll even say, do a pass, you get some money, but right? Half of our yeah, but I I I will say th- that this is um, I don't know that this is good or bad. This is just true. Uh, half the movies we made are indie movies, and we. I'd say a few different times, sort of like I was able to amass some savings and then use those savings to like, so that my family didn't have to change their quality of life while making a movie for free for two years. So like a few different times, a couple times we went and, and in order to be able to make a movie had to not make any money, you know, go from making a lot of money to making no money for a year and a half. Um, But you had, you had everything in order. It wasn't like you were, no, I mean, no, at the end of those, no, it's very scary at the end. At the yeah. end of that period of time, um, a couple of different times, we had to like scramble to go like, okay, like I know at the end of Solitary Man, I had no say, you know, I had some reti- like retirement, I had money uh, in my kids' college accounts. That you couldn't get, yeah. But I had no savings left after right. that movie. <laughs> that was like, because, you know, uh, uh, you you got to live. But, but but this is also like, but you're, you're passionate enough. It's an amazing thing to commit to a movie. Because, yeah. you know, when I hear people talk about it, I don't have the nerves for it. You, you know, to, to to have a vision, to execute the vision, and then to stay in it for the years that it takes to make the vision a reality, to me, is daunting. And it causes anxiety just to think about it. To have that much, to have the fortitude to commit to it. Yeah, I don't, I'll say that the committing to it, 
to get to be able to get lost in doing that is the greatest. It's like such an incredible. But I guess reward. at every step of the way, especially with something like Solitary Man, you know, you got the idea, then you got the story, then you got the script, and then you get somebody like yeah. Michael Douglas attached to it. Then at every at every turn, but yeah, there's juice. But I mean, writing it took four years, and I was miserable in the middle of it, and I couldn't figure it out. And well, couldn't you was, figure out? I was still, well, a couple things I want to say, which is one, I, the thing you said before, you said two things that I think are, are not exactly true. Uh, one, which really is annoying, is that uh, that there was nothing at stake when I was doing stand-up because that, for you to say that when all you judge people on is whether they've actually done it or not is bullshit because there's nothing else in the world, as you've said, it doesn't matter what the fuck you have mm-hmm. if you're standing on that stage and bombing. And I did it four nights a week like I did it every night. Well, what I meant by that, and I don't want you to misunderstand me, is that there, there's a difference between you, you know, and, and as you did with the music business, not necessarily quite the same. But when you go all into something and there is nothing behind you, is different. But I didn't know. I will say this: I was at, I was so I'm I lead all the time, and that's why, as you know, I do this podcast now, uh, the moment yeah. and. I just don't calculate. So I just lead by, like when you say the thing about going into a movie, like I would never think about the ramifications of it. All I think about is, uh, the whole pursuit for me is to be authentic and to be comfortable in my skin. Every part of the way has been a journey uh, to get to like, you know, are you okay? Is to get to like, am I okay? Am I am I being exactly what I want to be? To be yourself. Yeah, am I being what I want to be? Yeah. And so uh, I until I did stand up, and knew uh, and put in like 18 months of really doing it, I didn't know. Like I had to know, could I do it? Could I actually hang? Could I follow Todd Lynn? And could I follow Chris Rock? And could I stand it when Todd Lynn was in the back of the club watching me, knowing that he thought- He's the guy. Look at this, Dylan. Well, cause you know, he was like, look at this, Dylan. And then when he came up to me, and you know, he's the, I mean, that guy was so difficult. Yeah. And came up to me and he was brilliant and so fucked up and brilliant. And you know, he was like, oh, you could fucking do this. I hate you. You could really do it. Yeah. And that's how I became friends with Goldman and Dan Soder and all those dudes, uh, was because like Soder tells the story, uh, that he was sure I was a construction worker until, because I didn't talk, I, no one, they didn't know at first what I did. Yeah. He sort of was like, I thought you were a construction worker the first three months I knew you. Well, I, I get it. I, I get the warrior uh, approach and I get that you had something to prove to yourself yeah. and others. And I understand. I had to like go and do it. I, but, I understand. But that. no, but I remember. But it's still hard for me not to look at you as a weekend warrior on some level. I'm, I'm glad you did it. Yeah, but uh, but first of all, Anyone who acts no weekend warrior is somebody who went to three open mics and a couple bringer shows. All right, all right. No, isn't there? Tell me something. Is there not a difference between showing up Wednesday at twelve ten at Boston with nine drunks, three of them Scandinavian, in the audience, and having to figure out how to get through that with like your dignity? Yeah, but I, but there's some part of you that wanted to beat the shit out of yourself in order to find yourself, and that was a fine venue to do it. Yeah, but. Uh, Every comedian, anybody no, who's no, done I get comedy, that. no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not that. trying to. Ta- I'm not taking away your experience. But I mean, the way you're framing it mm. is that you, you know. Well, because the terror. I guess this is what the point is. The battle for me to actually get to being, and and the reason I talk about it is, I hear from people every day who are sitting in whatever their job is, and they have this fucking dream that they don't chase down. Because they think, but this I'm wasn't your dream. This was something you had to do. Now, if you talk to Havy, he would say to you that when I was like, I would go with him to the fucking cellar when I was 22 years old, right? So I was doing A and R. I would go with to, with Havy to the cellar every weekend for a year, for a year, certainly for like a year and yeah, a half. Yeah, but you just told me that your dream was to be a movie writer. 
Well, it was yeah, but the to be actively creative and okay. living all it. Right, all right, no, and then it, no, what it came to was yes, I have to I have to be able to do this thing and write movies. But I had written all these movies with a partner, my best friend Dave. I hadn't written a movie alone, and still had the question: Could I really? Could I really get in there and? write this thing because it was that movie was super important to me to write and when I was at the point in the middle of it where I couldn't solve it something said to me um, you're still scared and the reason you're still scared is the thing that you've been the most terrified of in your life in all this stuff is can you stand on a stage with a microphone and get through it and I was like fuck and I had to fucking do okay, it okay that's fine all. no no and I respect that I'm not I'm not taking your yeah. experience away because it's hard well no, but what I'm saying is like, you know, I did morning radio for a year and a half. I would never call myself a, a radio guy. That they're, that oh, they're, you've never heard me say I'm a comedian. I would never say that. I agree with you. I would never say I'm a comedian. Yeah, but you needed to do it. I'm I, glad you yeah, did it. that's it. And what, but was that to like, not only, because it seems to me in, the, in watching the film, that in order to, to garner any sympathy for that character... That it had to be so true, and the thing that you're talking about, the fearlessness in the face of, of, of failure to the point of almost sociopathology, that was in, in, instrumental in that character. That, you know, somebody who was, who was, was fearless to the point of uh, denial and in, unabil- in inability to change. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that character in that movie, I mean, came out of some people that I knew and out of anger, you know, I started writing it out of anger. And what do you mean, anger? Um, I started writing it out of anger because uh, someone I know very well, their father is very much like not not my dad, not so, is, is very much like that guy, and did the thing at the opening of the movie, which is he was uh, going to meet his grown-up daughter, and his grown-up daughter said, "Hi, dad," and he said. Don't call me dad in public because it makes it too hard to pick up women. And when I heard that story, I got so enraged that uh, a man would say that to his daughter and like hurt her in that way. Uh, Deny his, uh, you know, deny his own daughter because he called dad that I wrote the first 20 pages in a, uh, uh, almost exactly as they are in the movie, just in a fever uh, the next morning and then had these pages staring at me. Uh, and knew that if I could get that character going for a whole movie, it could really be something. But you, but in order to do that, the weird thing about it is, is that even me and the familiarity with that character, I mean, whether it was your friend's father or not, that character is that character. That character, on some level, is every man if he had game. So the thing is, is that innately, that character is sympathetic and should not read that way. To me, anyways. And, and I think that the, the challenge that it seems to me that you were up against was, was making that guy human. Yes, for sure. Being able to uh, have him talk in a way that you would take the ride with him. Dave and I, Dave and I directed it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we were incredibly lucky that Michael said he'd do the movie because Michael has so much charm and is able to it's put cr- that he's across. Great. He's only gotten better. And, you know, I guess part of it also was, Mark, parts of the movie had to be funny. And maybe I just had to get up on stage to know that I could make it funny. No, look, you had to get up on stage to break through a wall for yourself. Yeah, just to know that the yeah, rejection, I mean, just to know that um, I could live through that 
rejection. Sure, the rejection of nine people at twelve ten in the morning. For you some know, reason, it takes a, a very, it's very. Uh, in those moments, it seems all important to the entire world. So now, why is that so? The world worse is than, watching because, like, yeah, the the I once I once bombed in front of like three hundred people at Caroline's early, and it was not nearly as bad as the nine. Like, well, you think nine, you should be able to manage that. You know, I mean, Christ, if you can't charm nine people. Right. Yes, the nine people. <laughs> you go one by one. Yeah, you just can't. You just can't fathom <laughs> that you have that little ability to connect. But sometimes, yeah, people. I mean, it's easier to bomb in front of a big audience, I think. Because, like, you know, it, 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 it's easier to gauge because you got all these people. It's like, that's not quite enough laughter for a room this size. With nine people, you you almost feel your heart connecting to them. So, you know, they're right there. Yeah. It's not a more, it's not this big, you know. No, and it's uh, a fascinating thing, too, because it's fascinating how quickly you can turn mean on. St- like, it's just a fascinating thing. Yeah, but that's thing. connecting. Yeah, but it's a fascinating thing to do to see, oh. you know, the places that you'll go, the, like, the places yeah, you'll go in well, desperation. Well, but that's the thing about stand up. It's like you can do whatever the fuck you want to. And certainly, you know, at a, at a 12 10 spot on a Thursday or a Tuesday, it's like, who's going to tell you? The door guy who wants to be a comic that you're doing right. something wrong? You can literally go up on stage and look at people and go, fuck you. Fuck and, you. Right. And, no. you know, you might get hit, but you could do it. <laughs> no, and the, the amazing thing is that when uh, the people that I that you know then, that I knew then, that I did open mics with, yeah. and that then, you know, there are two sane people in the open mic who became, I mean, you really like the the connection you have with the people who are in those clubs. It's like a very intense. Well, yeah, it's all, it always is, even if it's only for a day. There, you know, because it, it, the life is so specific. And, you know, and the the commitment to it and the sort of the connection of the weird selfishness of all of us. Uh, and yet we're all so close in some weird way. It's very it's an intense, thing. you know, it's an intense, um, an intense thing. And so the other thing that I, that you said that I think is not uh, is only half right when you said that I struck you as someone who wanted to be around talent. Uh, and I, I know what you mean by talent, um, the way people in the business use that uh, term. Uh, it's actually more it's simpler and more innocent than that which is that i uh i am always searching out like uh genius and i want to i want i am uh constantly in in trying to push myself to be better and also um when someone's work re- it's not talent i you know i i i don't uh i don't give a shit about fame Mm-hmm. about meeting famous people or mm-hmm. about meeting people who are regarded by the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I care about uh, if I think that they're special mm-hmm. and great and that their work is amazing, mm-hmm. that I want to be around mm-hmm. because I want to like learn from that. I want to look at it. Uh, I want to uh, engage in, in some way and be able to talk about it. I mean, that's why I do my podcast uh, because, I mean, the whole premise of it is that, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by how like remarkable people process big moments, big or you know, good or bad. Really, not remarkable people. That it's people who accomplish remarkable things. Like, how do they handle crushing disappointment or huge success and move forward? I'm just fascinated. Yeah, by but it. what is it? Why? What, what, what do you feel like you're lacking? I I don't know what I'm lacking. What am I? I don't know. Uh, um, I am. When are you gonna know? You, know, you never know, man. I, you know, all you can do is try to uh, keep going, right? Like, how can you really know uh, what it would be like to do something really beautiful? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then I realized just do the work. Like at a certain point, I realized, well, just do do your best. Like do the work. Don't mm -hmm. don't don't worry about that. Uh, but I still like having the conversations. I still like hearing it. I still part of me probably still thinks, you know, it kills me uh, uh, that David Foster Wallace. I met him twice, but mm -hmm. it kills me that he died. I feel you know, and I never got to really like hear it from him. Like what did it feel? What does it feel like to be that? Mm -hmm. You know. What does it really feel like to be the smart, you know, to be that deep and that smart? Apparently it felt a little too much. But I don't know, that pursuit is still enormous. I mean, that's what you, when you're a writer, you're, and you create characters even, you're trying, I, I mean, I don't think about what it is I'm trying to work out in that stuff, but it's, obviously you're trying to touch some experience uh, in, a, in a way that's different then you experience it or understand it well i'll tell you that movie solitary man took a couple of turns i didn't see coming and they were very bold but uh you know the ending is ballsy ending yeah thanks I, I i remember writing the ending of it and knowing uh it's not good the <laughs> i was never going to change it and there might have been one day it was great because dave levine my partner is like yeah. one of the greatest guys on i mean to me you know the best guy i know and uh the, right before we started uh, did you look at that ending and go like well not a lot of people are going to see this movie no you know when people were um, refusing to make it right when people were rejecting it uh, if I would have changed the ending I would have had a big deal for the movie I know and but uh, we said no over and over again and then I remember standing there Soderbergh who produced the movie and yeah. helped us and got Michael Douglas he said don't shoot he wasn't going to be there when we shot the end of the movie and he said listen you're going to have a huge uh, instinctive pull to protect yourself and shoot an ending that's different from that you're going to want to cover. Do not, if you shoot another ending, someone's going to force you to use it. Don't do it. And I remember being there on the day and the assistant director coming up and going, do you guys want to just have him? Go? And I'll tell you, my insecurity rose up and I almost did it. And Levine just said, no fucking way. This is the ending you wrote. This is the ending we're shooting. That's it. Yeah. And that was it. That's all that we did. Uh, because, <laughs> man, I, I know... I just knew that that's where that had to uh, sit. And then I got really well protected by my partner uh, and um, and was able, you know, was able to keep it that way. But uh, I, I did, I, I will say, I I felt like from, I felt like you would get something out of it. You know, it's not a movie for everybody, but I felt you would get something out of it. Well, I, I do. And uh, I'm uh, in, we're not going to have any, uh, this is the end. You Mark, know, yeah. man, listen, I'm so, ha I gotta say, yeah. uh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, this has been, I, I I love the show, and you've done a real good, you know, you've mm. done a really good thing. Thanks, man. Did, did you, how was your experience? Is it all right with it? How I feel doesn't matter. It yeah, matters to me right now. No, didn't you say it doesn't matter how we feel? It only matters that we did it? No, but I know that you wanted to do it, and you know, it's a, and, I, and I inspired you somehow. But what was your, your WTF experience? It was really good. Are there any coffee mugs? Do you have any more souvenir mugs? I'll give you a mug. Mugs? I'll give you. All right, all right. That's, uh, that's it. That's I just it. think the souvenir no, mug. Okay, and I'll then... give you. All right, all right. Good talking to you. All right, see that? He's got his podcast. I got my podcast. He started to interview me a little bit. It was interesting. I, yeah, I like that guy. We got along good, I thought. Anyways, go to WTFpod.com and get on that mailing list because I'm going to be, uh, got something coming up. Might want to share with you. Get some JustCoffee.coop over there. Leave a comment. Get the app. Upgrade to the premium app. Stream all the stuff. Whatever. 
right? Boomer lives! <laughs>